Our scripture again is taken from the third number of Psalms, and we'll read verses 3 and 4. Psalms 3, verses 3 and 4. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. May God richly bless both the reading and the hearing of his holy word. Now, before we look into our text, the two verses that we've chosen, uh, I want to call attention to the title line of the psalm. The title line of the psalm, it says, A Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. And so whatever else the psalm is about, whatever else, uh, whatever other feelings, emotions may have driven him, whatever his love for the Lord is, whatever his recognition of the need uh, for salvation in the Lord is, what resonates to me are the last two words or the, the circumstances It's a psalm of David when he fled from Absalom. But the last two words puts it all in perspective. He fled from Absalom, his son. Last week we looked at Genesis. And we looked at the story of the reunion between Jacob and Esau. And I would maintain that one of the places where we see the effects of the fall, one of the continual reminders that we live in a cursed creation is in the dysfunction in the family unit. Now, I know it's easy to say that, yeah, we look at, at, at the headlines, we can, look at, we can look at graveyards and hospitals, prisons and and bars on our homes as a reminder that we live in a cursed creation. We can look at all of the things, the twisted things that give us pleasure. We can look at poverty in the street. We can look at war and talk about man's inhumanity to man. We can look at the deterioration of the wonderful planet that God has given to us. All of those do testify to the fact that There is a divine curse upon the world that God has made. And the cause of this curse is the sin of man. But of all of the places that we can talk about evidence of the cursed creation, I think the most prominent and the most significant reminder that we are not in heaven yet is the fact of dysfunctional families. And we see it, as we mentioned, we mentioned it in, in conjunction with the relationship of brothers. The reason that Jacob fled in the first place is because Esau, his brother, wanted to kill him. And we talked about uh, Cain and Abel. Cain killed his brother Abel. But brothers and sisters, even more significant than sibling rivalry, The greatest evidence of our fallen status is the relationship that is between parent and child. And I would argue that what the pain that reverberates through these words from David 
is a reflection of a reality that all of us have experienced to one degree or another. The truth of the matter is none of us were the children that we should have been. And the other side of that is none of us who have the pleasure and the honor of being parents are the parents that we should be. Now granted, we are better perhaps than some, we are better perhaps than we used to be, but the reality is a reflection of our status before God is seen in the fractured, dysfunctional relationships that are far too more, far more normative than they should be in the context of parents and children. The parent-child relationship is really intended to parallel the relationship between God, our creator, who is the source of our existence, and our response to him. Now, God has demonstrated himself as a, as a faithful father and as a, faithful, as, 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 as a faithful guardian and keeper and provider. But we, in our fallen state, are not the children that we are supposed to be. And this is seen in, to various degrees uh, in, our, in, in various family dynamics. Now, I know it's uh, common for people to think that there was a golden day of families. But brothers and sisters, let me just drop this one on you. There is no golden age of parenting out east of Eden. Once we have been kicked out of the garden, at best, we do see uh, those who have been brought to a saving knowledge of the Lord, trusting in the Lord, raising our children in the fear and nurture of the Lord. We have seen loving families, but don't let that fool you. Dysfunction has been there since the fall, and it remains there. There are things that we see in our culture that allows us to see it more up close. I was reading uh, something, I, I, I was watching something, and I saw the comedian Cat Williams, and something about something that he said, it was actually he was playing a role, but something caused me to, to somehow just go to his Wikipedia page. And the thing that stood out to me is that at the age of 13, he went to court to gain freedom from his parents and was given it. That tells me that something is wrong. In family relationships where parents, we think that we love our children right and sometimes we love them to the point that we don't nurture them in the things of God. And sometimes we love them to such a degree, even as David himself, it says that he didn't teach his children. He, he didn't correct him when he should have corrected Absalom. And I just thought about, here is someone who, is, who was given at the age of 13, is liberated from his parents. He said, well, what kind of world is this? Brothers and sisters, this isn't, this isn't just Western culture. It's fallen, it's a reality of living in a fallen world. That parents are not as loving as they ought to be. Granted, those in Christ learn to love more and to, more, and to, love, more, and, and to love in a more balanced way. But the reality is all of us are flawed. This is not a Western problem. There, there's, there's bad parents and children wherever people live. It doesn't, it's, 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 not, it's, it's not just partial to, to poverty. 
Also, those who are privileged have the same problem because we're dealing with the same issue, that both parent and child are sinners. And the degree of our sinfulness will manifest itself differently in the context of that relationship according to a number of things are being believers or being our culture and the things that we are nurtured with. But the reality is parents and children are a reflection of man and God. That we, and the difference is, we serve a holy God. We serve a gracious, loving father, and and he knows how to parent, so we don't really learn how to parent until we understand the fatherhood of God and how God has parented us and how he's nurtured us. And we really don't understand our role and function as children until we are joined to the sonship of Christ. And so, therefore, I want to use that as a platform as, as David whatever else he is dealing with. In verse 1, he talks about his, the enemies, his, his foes. And here's what makes this such a sad, tragic song. That when he uses the phrase, my foes that surround me, or, or um, oh Lord, how many are my foes that are, and those who are against me, that when he makes that statement, Included in that, that, that category of foes is one who has come forth from his own loins. And brothers and sisters, that, that whatever else David says in this psalm, whatever else David says here, that strikes a chord. That his own son is considered as an enemy. Not because David has not loved him. And yes, David's own sin is part of his poor parenting to some degree. But Absalom also, because he's fallen, is an enemy of his father. And isn't that what all of us are? I know people come forth and they think, well, I love God. I just, you know, I I love God. I'm not what I ought to be. But no, that's not how the Bible describes us. We don't just come here loving God. We are included in the number of the foes against God. We are enemies of God. Paul says while we were yet enemies, Christ came and died for us. But it's a tragedy and it's it's really a commentary on the fallen human condition that a father would be able to name his son as one of his enemies. And so it's with this pain of parenting that we want to look at at, at not just this text, but what, what David says here about his son Absalom as an enemy. It's really sort of a, it, it, it touches on a broader scale. And here's the reality. In all of our vertical relationships, We are subject to experience what David experiences from the hands of his son. We are are prone to suffer greatly because of the things that we experience in a fallen world that's under the curse of God and the only means of redemption is what God himself has provided. Now that being the case, there are, there's there's three things that we want to extract from verse 3. 
but there are two steps that lead us to verse 3. And the first thing is this, the reality of what we experience in this world, we see this in verse 4. Here's a reminder, brothers and sisters, it's okay to cry. It's okay. In verse 4, David cries out, he says, he says, I've cried aloud to the Lord. And that's the first thing. Here's when we recognize that we are overwhelmed by circumstances in our horizontal conditions. When the reality of dysfunction comes home to us, we don't always have the tool belt to fix it. And it's good to be able to cry out. David is experiencing something because on top of the fact that he knows how to deal with enemies, by the way. David was a soldier. He was a, he was a warrior. He earned extra money while he was fleeing from Saul by taking care of others and sort of as a mercenary and, and leading a mercenary troop. So he knew how to deal with enemies. But enemies, the very concept of enemies is now changed. Because enemies are not just people from a different country. Enemies are not people who have a political issue with you. We discover in this fallen world that enemies can rise up in your own home. And sometimes, brothers and sisters, the best that we can do See, David, David knew when no one else knew how, David knew how to deal with Goliath. But when his own son rises up against him, it's not as easy. And so the best that he could do is flee, not because of fear, but in a sense because of love. And so David cries out. He says, I'm not ashamed. I, I cried aloud to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, I think that sometimes in our age of happy, clappy Christianity. We don't have room to cry. Cry, we've even taken, we, we've even made crying look passe at funerals. That's one of the reasons I, I try to make it a point. For those, when we are doing funerals, for those who have lost loved ones, it's okay to cry. And we can cry, and we can cry out to the Lord. Because the reality is, brothers and sisters, the Lord knows our hurts and he has availed himself to us to hear our cries. It's okay to cry and sometimes that's all you need is just a good cry and, 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 and it's okay to cry in your faith. That's why, in, in, again, in our church structures, it's okay to have room for a moment of silence. You don't, you don't always have to have background noise. Sometimes just... Be still, be quiet. I was interviewed uh, last week on uh, crackers and grape juice, second time, and they usually end the interviews with a series of questions from the actor's uh, studio. And one of the questions is, what is your favorite sound? And this, another one is, what is your least favorite sound? So I said this time, my least favorite sound is worship leaders in evangelical, in, in evangelical churches telling me how to respond to the grace of my God. 
In other words, I don't need anybody telling me to stand up. I don't need anybody to tell me to give the Lord a hand praise. I don't need anybody to tell me to shout. I don't need anyone to tell me to turn to my neighbor. All I need when I come into the sanctuary of God is for you to show me my Savior. And the sound that grates on my ears the most is if he's done anything for you, do. No, just shut up and tell me what he's done. And what he's done is he sent his son. And therefore, whether I shout, whether I nod, there's room for me to open up and and express all of my pain and all of my frustration before God. I don't have to put a happy face on it. One of the beauties of the Psalms is the full range of emotion when God's people pour out their heart to God. This morning we talked about James, where James says, in the midst of your trials, don't say that God has tempted you. In other words, don't accuse God. But the Psalms are full of of opportunities for us to pour out our hearts. And when pain hits us, to say, Lord, it hurts. David knows what God has promised him. David knows what God has done to him, but his son is among his enemies. And at best, all he could do is cry out to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, there's no shame. There's no weakness. There's, in fact, it's healthy weakness that is revealed. It's okay to cry. But here's the second thing. David not only says that in verse 4 that he cries out to the Lord, but we also see the place from which the answer to his cry comes. And that's also in verse 4. Because he says he will answer, God answers him from, he answered me from his holy hill. He answered me from his holy hill. The reference there is to Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the place where the Lord allowed David to bring, to to, to build or to bring the tabernacle and to bring the Ark of the Covenant. And that's eventually where the temple was built. And when the, in the building of the temple, the hill of the Lord, it's, and it's important to make a distinction here. Because in the Old Testament, among the pagans, they had their high places where they had their shrines that were built. But God allows, and, and so it's not, to, it's not that Israel was following the pattern of the pagans. But God chooses this little bitty hill, because it's not, if you've been to Colorado or if you've been to California, you know that the mountains in Jerusalem are barely mountains. They're foothills. But here's what made it a grand place. God allowed his altar to be built there. As a matter of fact, there are two things that are related to the hill of the Lord. The hill of the Lord is really the place where David, when he bought the threshing floor of Anon to build the temple that would later be built, he built it, he bought the place that that was the place where Abraham was ready to offer up his son Isaac as a sacrifice to the Lord. And the Lord stayed his hand. Remember when Isaac asked the question, well, Father, I see everything for the sacrifice. I see everything for a sacrifice, but where is the sacrifice? And Abraham answered, the Lord himself will provide. Well, the place where Abraham was ready to offer up his son Isaac 
is in very close proximity to a place that over 2,000 years later, God would offer up his son just outside of Jerusalem, and it's called Mount Zion. It's all part of Mount Zion, where God brings back his hand, and he does not stay his hand. In other words, in Mount Zion, and all of the things that are associated with the worship of God, God reveals himself through the ministry of the priesthood in Mount Zion. God reveals something of his holiness in the temple that would eventually be built there and the, the ta- and the place of worship and the holy of holies, the covenant of the ark of the Lord. All of those are associated with the designated place of worship. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that these are copies of a heavenly reality. In other words, when we cry to the Lord, God shows us in his holy sanctuary the things by which he answers our prayers. And that is the sacrifice of offering. That is the the priesthood, the perpetual priesthood, the mediator between God and man. And ultimately, the priesthood is to be replaced by the great high priest who is Jesus Christ himself, who tears the veil in the temple so that God still answers his people from the holy hill. And so here's what I wanted to lead to. It's okay to cry, and God answers our cry from his holy hill. And he answers our cry, whatever else, however it's fleshed out for us in our individual circumstances and situations. In verse 3, we see three things that God promises or that God provides for his people in the midst of their horizontal struggles, whatever they may be. And David, as he is feeling the pain of a rebellious son, he cries out to the Lord. And from the holy hill, the Lord answers him. And three things that that David is reminded of from the things that are provided in the tabernacle. One is that God is our shield. God is our shield in verse 3. He says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me. So nothing can get to me that doesn't first go through you. God is the shield of his people. He's the guard of our people. So whatever else get in, thank God for what he has kept out. God is our rear guard. He is our vanguard. He is our shield. He is our buckler. He is our protection. He is ultimately, everything is up to him. In fact, the New Testament expression of this is not as poetic, but it's when Jesus says that no one can pluck us from the hand of God. Why? Because he's our shield. He's our protector. A shield does not mean that people won't shoot. It just blocks the shots. It it doesn't mean that stuff won't happen, but it means that, that you have a shield or a force of protection in front of you that keeps you. So as David is not on his throne, he's had to leave, and he's had to leave because of the rebellion of his son, even in this distant place. And of course, David knew what it meant to have to flee for his life because he fled for years from from Saul. 
But he is reminded from the house of the Lord, from the holy hill of the Lord, that the Lord is a shield for his people. Brothers and sisters, might I remind you, you don't have to sign up special in order to get God to be your shield. If Jesus is your savior, then God is your shield. If you are, if you call upon the name of the Lord, then he is your shield. There's nothing, this isn't for, this isn't extra credit sort of stuff. God isn't a shield for some Christians and, a, and not a shield for others. He is our shield. And one of the reasons I emphasize that is because so often when we, when we, when we don't understand the centrality of Christ, we try to make it appear as if some, this is something you have to get and you might have saving faith, but you don't have shield faith. You might have this kind of faith, but you don't have that kind of faith. Well, God is the shield for all of those who look to him for salvation. Cry to the Lord and what he will explain to you from his holy hill is that he is a shield for all of his people which means there is nothing that can pluck us from the hand of the Father, and there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus, because God is our shield. And even though we may lose our mortal lives, there is nothing that has been purchased by the blood of Christ that is at stake or that could be lost. But here's the second thing that God communicates from the holy hill that David is able to, to glean from and to learn from and to be strengthened even as he flees from his own son. That God is his glory. What is it that we take the most pride in? At this point, certainly David is probably not a candidate for father of the year. He does no, he's not taking pride in, his, in his, his being a good soldier or a good husband. But his glory is in the Lord. God becomes a shield for his people. And God is the glory of his people. So whatever else we are, we, and again in going through the book of James, we read uh, last week where, where James says, don't let or let the let the poor or the lowly brother uh, boast in his exaltation and let the and, and let the rich man boast in his humiliation. And I argued that both the humiliation of the rich and the exaltation of the poor is to recognize who they are in light of the cross. So that for the rich man, he's not rich because of his bank account, he's rich. Because he's poor in spirit. And for the, the, the lowly person, the, the poor person, they are exalted not because they are poor, but it is a reminder that whatever your economic status is, your position in Christ is greater than what people say you are supposed to be. And so God is a glory for his people. Brothers and sisters, it would be to our it would be to our advantage to understand what it is that is the most valuable part of us. What is it that makes us stand out above the rest? It's not the stuff that we do. It's not information that we have per se. It's not our possessions. It's not our accomplishments. Our glory is in this, that we belong to the Most High God. That everything that breathes is, is under the lordship of God. But we who have been redeemed 
can call upon him as father. We have the privilege of prayer because he's our glory. He is what makes us stand out. He is the difference. It's not our IQ. It's not our zip code. It's not how how much money we have or even how much we've given away. Our point of glory. That's why the Lord says in Jeremiah, don't let the rich man boast in his, in his riches. And don't let the strong man boast in his strength. Don't let the wise man boast in his wisdom. But if anyone boasts, let him boast in this, that he knows me. And therefore, brothers and sisters, God answers us from the holy place. Even David in his, wherever it was that he was hiding out, one of the places that he stayed when he was fleeing from Saul was the cave of Adullam. Maybe David was in the cave of Adullam. But wherever he is, he recognizes that the Lord is his shield and the Lord is his glory. His boast is not in how in, in the, the giants that he killed or the soldiers or the armies that he defeated. His boast is that he belongs to the Lord and the Lord has covenanted himself to David. But here's the third and final thing that we get from the hill of the Lord. The place of worship when God's word is rightly divided among God's people. God is the lifter up of our heads. What a wonderful statement. God is the lifter up of our heads. It's not not a matter of him saying, okay, keep a stiff upper lip. But David recognizes that the God who is his glory and the God who is his shield is, is also a gracious father who knows when his children are downtrodden. And it is God who is the one was able to lift up our heads so that we do not have to stay bowed down in shame and we don't have to be overcome and overly distraught by depression. God is the one who lifts up our head. God, knowing that he who is in the holy hill that he himself is our shield and our glory sometimes is our main reason for getting up in the morning. Brothers and sisters, it doesn't mean that we can't be downtrodden because God, who is a shield around us, also allows us to feel pain and he feels it with us, but he holds up our head. He allows us to go boldly to the throne of grace when we feel like like we are flawed and failed. He allows us to live amongst the people, knowing what the people might know about us. He is the one who lifts up our head so that we're not overwhelmed. He's the one who lifts up our head so that we are not so bowed down with shame or with grief that we cannot exist. David is fleeing from his enemies who, is, who includes his son. And I cannot imagine the pain of having a son 
that would rebel against you to the point that he, not only does he want what you have, but he'll kill you to get it. And so when, when life, whether it's children or circumstances, overwhelm, brothers and sisters, it's okay to cry. It's okay to cry. And know that God hears you from the holy hill from whence, from the, the place from whence he sacrificed his son. And it's from there, it's from the cross of Calvary that he reminds us that he himself is a shield for us and he is our glory and he's the lifter up of our heads so that we can go on and we can, if we have to stay in the cave, we can stay in the cave with an upheld head. And if he returns us to the palace, it's with an upheld head. The thing I like about David is we know all of the things about David. We, we know his flaws, we know his foibles, we know his failures, but David was bold in his declaration of God's love for him because he's the lifter up of our heads. Brothers and sisters, let us hear from the pain of this father what it is that gives him comfort and what gives him strength. And I would maintain that God being our shield, God being our glory, and God being the lifter up of our heads are not addendums to the gospel, but it is the content of the gospel itself. And the more we hear from the holy hill of the Lord, who speaks to us in our, in our moment when we cry out, this is what he reminds us of, and therefore we can go on. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you in the blessed name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the reminder that in the midst of our turmoil, in the midst of our pain, and in the midst of our trials, some of which have been, are the result of our own failures. But whatever the reason may be, you're ours. And you've given us a privilege where we can cry out to you in our time of need. And Father, we thank you for answering us from the very place where you sacrificed your son. And what is confirmed in his precious shed blood is all that you are for us. And so we pray that as we leave this place and we go back to our areas, our homes, our caves, our, our circumstances, our situations, that the truth that you have conveyed through the wounding of your son would be our comfort, our incentive, and our motivation to continue to seek your glory in all that we say and all that we do. Thank you for the comforts of your grace, and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand? Now unto him who was able to pre present you faultless before his presence with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be power, majesty, and dominion, both now and forever. Let all of God's people say, Amen.